0: Now, I I kind of broke my own tradition and I had the ushers hand out an outline this morning. I did that because uh, I want to deal with a little bit of context first and I just wanted you to to see where I am and use that outline to kind of track uh, where we are as we move through this passage. Um, And I thought, thought it might be a little helpful this time. I want to start with a question, as I often do. Would your attitude about your own life, past, present, and future, be any different if you were fully convinced that God was doing all the steering, that the direction of your life was entirely His doing and not yours or anyone else's? Would that make you less anxious or would it make you more anxious? Your answer to that last question tells a lot about your view of god and about your priorities if it's a big priority to you to maintain control over your life and especially to avoid pain and discomfort then finding out that god is calling all the shots won't be very comfortable to you because his agenda is about his glory and your holiness rather than about your comfort. The Bible is very clear that you cannot follow God's agenda for your life and be comfortable at the same time. But if on the other hand you have humility before God and you are willing to actually embrace His plans for you, in fact if your desire is that His plan and his priorities always supersede yours, then it would be exceedingly comforting to know that that's exactly what's going on. And the good news is that that is exactly what's going on, whether you like it or not. In Proverbs sixteen nine, Solomon wrote, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Notice he didn't say that the Lord directs his steps some of the time. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10:23 said, "I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his own steps." Now you may believe that God gives his children a certain degree of latitude and freedom to act within Certain boundaries, and I believe that as well. But to the extent that God gives us freedom to choose and to act, I am convinced that He intervenes to create a lot of course corrections in our day to day lives in order to move us along the path that He has intended, that He has chosen and specifically in order to accomplish through us what he intends to accomplish, because that's why we're here. I believe that the Bible makes it clear that this is true, whether we like it or not. It's just a whole lot better for us once we choose to like it. Once we accept that our Father's agenda is the very best possible agenda for us who are his children. There are many, many attestations to that understanding in Scripture, uh, both in the lives of those who were willing and in the lives of those who were not. Uh, one, one Psalm, I could point out many passages, but I'll point you to Psalm 139. It's a beautiful statement, not just about God's omnipresence, but about God's leading, about the fact that God is the one who supervises every day of our lives. Now, it's important for you to sort out whose plan for your life you actually want, God's or yours. Because if the Bible is right, and it is, the one you're going to get is God's. In today's passage, Paul lays out his own understanding regarding God's plan, not his plan, but God's plan, to put Paul to further use in the months after he wrote this great epistle. Some of that plan, as Paul envisioned it, played out the way he thought it would. Some of it happened very, very differently than he thought it would. All of it happened the way God envisioned it, and that was perfectly fine with Paul. That in itself is a very useful lesson to us from the example of Paul's life that we'll consider this morning, but there are some other gems in this passage that we need to see as well. Now, in order to understand the great significance of what Paul is saying here, we need to see it in the context of some things he's already said earlier in the epistle, starting all the way back at the beginning. In Romans chapter 1, in the first several verses of the epistle, Paul explained very clearly the nature of the mission that had been assigned to him and to his co-workers by God the very reason that they had received grace and apostleship. And you can turn to that if you'd like. I don't have a slide for it, but in Romans 1, verses 1 through 6, he explained that the mission that he had been given was to present the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ with the goal of bringing about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for Christ's namesake. And in Romans 15, we saw last week, that Paul speaks of that very same mission again. He said that the grace that was given to him from God was given so that he, this is verses 15 to 18 of Romans 15, and it's a paraphrase, the grace of God was given to him from God so that he would be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles and that he was called, in a sense, to act as a priest, offering up to God the Gentiles as a as a holy and blameless sacrifice made blameless by the work of the Holy Spirit. As we've seen throughout the book, the central theme of this epistle is the righteousness of God given to men. And that righteousness, of course, starts when God justifies us. He draws us to faith in Christ, and then He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He puts our sin on Christ, and He puts Christ's righteousness on us, and that's how He sees us from that day forward as a free gift. We don't earn it. He gives it freely. If we had to earn it, we'd never have it. Ever. And then having been justified, having been declared righteous in His eyes because of the righteousness of Christ, He then works in us by the Spirit, through the Word, to sanctify us, to conform us to Christ in reality, in practice. Day by day. And that's a lifelong process of being conformed to Christ. He imputes His righteousness to us in a judicial way and He imparts His righteousness to us in a practical way. Now, Paul declares in Romans 15 that His assignment from God was not only to bring the message of the Gospel to the Gentiles, but was also to deliver to the Gentile church instruction from God that the Holy Spirit would use to conform those Gentile believers to Christ, to sanctify them. Paul clearly had in mind this task of equipping and of building up the church among the Gentiles when he spoke of his earnest desire to visit the Roman saints. And back in chapter 1 again, verses 8 through 12, he said, He longed to see the Romans in order that he might impart some spiritual gift to them, that they might be established. And he said, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It's very, very important to note that throughout Paul's ministry, his plans and his hopes, his purposes, were all a function of God's will that had already been revealed to him, of God's assignment for him. Whatever difference existed between that which Paul had planned and that which God had planned for Paul was a difference not in purpose but only in knowledge. God was the one who knew the plan perfectly. Paul knew it imperfectly. Now how is it that Paul understood God's plan for him to come to Rome? Well in the passage we're looking at today, Paul explains how he understood that plan at the time he wrote this epistle. And as your outline shows, Paul explains first why he had not yet been able to make that visit to Rome. He explains why also he's going to be delayed further before he can make that visit to see the saints in Rome. And then he explains his hope and intention to visit the Roman saints very soon. Now if you and I genuinely want to understand the heart and priorities of a man who was yielded to God's purposes so that we may in turn have that heart and those priorities ourselves, then this passage will be very valuable to us. Now, in verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22, Paul explains first why he has not yet made it to Rome. Rome. Verse 21, in verse verse 20, he says, Thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. And then he quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 15. It says, As it is written, they They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. Now, the, the verse he quotes in verse 21 is from Isaiah 52:15, And that's in that section, if you recall, in Isaiah 52:12 through the rest of chapter 53. That whole passage is about Messiah. It's about the suffering servant of God who would, who would be sent by God to take upon himself our transgressions. He would be pierced through for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being would fall upon him, and by his scourging we would be healed. And that was written 700 years before Christ came. And the piece of that passage that Paul quotes is the piece that says that knowledge about Messiah would be made known to people who never had heard anything about him. And that was not the Jews, because the Jews had heard about Messiah from the very first book of the Bible, starting in chapter 3 of Genesis, throughout all the prophets, throughout all the Psalms. Alright, Paul understood, based on these verses, he understood very clearly that God's highest priority for him was to spread the good news of redemption in Jesus Christ among the Gentiles as far and as broadly as he possibly could during his lifetime. And that priority meant that Paul would not get to stay very long in any one city. He had a whole lot of real estate to cover throughout the Roman Empire. And so he aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ had already been named so that he might not build upon another man's foundation. And verse 22 shows that he declares this is the key reason he has not yet got, gotten to Rome. See, the church in Rome had already been started through the work of others. Paul had never been there yet. And that church was already pretty well established. Paul acknowledged in Romans 1.8 that the faith of the Roman saints was strong. In fact, it was so strong that their faith was being talked about throughout the whole Christian world. And just as he, had said, uh, he also said in Romans 15.14 that he was convinced about the Roman saints, that they were full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now that's a much kinder commendation than he gives to some churches, like the church at Corinth. The church at Rome simply did not fit Paul's special ministry assignment, which was foundation laying, not house building. So for Paul to spend a lot of time in Rome would be a duplication of effort and a squandering of resources for which God had other plans. But that most certainly did not mean that Paul didn't want to come and spend time with the Roman saints. In in chapter 15, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, and I think with emotion, he says, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. The church in Rome was so solid it was so well established that paul's desire to come and visit them was not just for their benefit it was for his benefit he wanted to be he wanted to be encouraged by them as well as to encourage them but paul's god-given priority of spreading the gospel of christ as broadly as possible among the gentile cities demanded that he would not get to spend much time enjoying the fellowship of established believers in mature churches. And there are a couple of aspects of this special assignment that God gave to Paul that I think we need to consider a little further before we press on. First, some Christians, particularly some well-intentioned missionaries, who are commendably zealous about spreading the gospel far and wide, sometimes put what I believe is a false emphasis on Romans 15, verses 20 and 21. They treat Paul's statement about not building on another man's foundation as if it is normative for all Christians. In other words, as if our job description from God is exactly the same as Paul's. And if you carry that to the logical extreme, if we were all faithful to that universal priority from God, none of us would be sitting here today. We'd all be somewhere in the world where the name of Christ has not been proclaimed. I'm not sure where the funding would come from, but that would be God's problem in any case. Of course, none of them carry it quite to that logical extreme. But some very definitely leave believers at home with a sense of guilt over the fact that they are still at home. And I strongly believe that when they do so, they are mishandling these verses. Paul makes it very clear in other passages that he does not see his statement here as binding on every other Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is gently rebuking the Corinthian believers for divisions that exist among them, divisions that have to do with allegiance toward people instead of toward Christ. He said back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that they were, the Corinthians were dividing themselves over such allegiances. Some were saying, I am of Paul. Some were saying, I am of Apollos. And others were saying, well, I am of Cephas which is another name for Peter. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, Paul says this. He says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. And he says, We are... God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And then he says in verse 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another man is building on top of it. And then he gives a warning. He says, let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Paul is saying that his God-given task was to lay the foundation. Knowing that other men's God-given task was to build upon that foundation. He fully understood that his assignment was only one piece of that whole building project. But there's another facet of Paul's words here that I think we must not miss, and it's kind of the other the other side of the coin. There are still many places in this world where the name of Christ is not known. And there are many, many places in this world where believers in Jesus Christ are very few and very far between. Both as individuals and corporately as a body, God calls us to be mindful of the compelling and desperate need that men have to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and the need for his church to be built up to maturity and effectiveness everywhere that his church exists. In Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul said, How shall they call upon him whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. I believe CBC has been very effective as a sending church but that's an unfinished task and we must always be considering how we as individuals and how we corporately as a body may be used by God to advance the gospel in those places where the foundation of Christ has not yet been laid and to build up his church everywhere that it has been laid so Paul was called to be a foundation layer rather than a house builder and that meant he didn't get to stay long in any one place and while he was very faithful to that god-given priority, I believe it was the most painful part of God's assignment to Paul from his perspective, because Paul had a tender affection for the believers in every city, the cities in which he had labored so diligently to plant the church by God's doing, and those in which he had not in first Thessalonians two verses seven and eight paul says We, I and my co-workers, proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. That tender affection that Paul had for the new believers throughout the many fledgling churches in the Roman Empire extended even to believers he had never met in cities in which he had never been. He longed to encourage and to nurture the church and to enjoy the sweet fellowship of all of those believers. But that was not God's central assignment for Paul, and I believe for Paul that was hard. That was painful. At this particular point in his ministry, Paul saw what he understood to be a window of opportunity. Not to come and stay long in Rome. He specifically says that's not the plan. But to come and to briefly visit the Romans on his way to an as yet unreached area that we now call Western Europe, in which Spain is located. But even that window of opportunity, he says, has to wait a little longer. (laughs) He explains that, God still had one more unfinished task for him before he could make his way to the, visit the Romans on, his, on the way to Spain. In verses 25 through 27, he talks about this divine detour. He says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were very pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Now, if you look at the map up here, Paul, during his first missionary journey, started, started ultimately from, from Antioch, and he went into Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And he, there were many churches planted there. In the second missionary journey, he saw a vision of a man up here in Macedonia asking for help. And he believed that God was calling him and his team to go up to Macedonia to spread the gospel further. During that second missionary journey, there were many churches planted both in Macedonia and also down here in Achaia, which is kind of the northern regions of what was then Greece. That, included, that area included churches that are very recognizable by name in Scripture, like Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea, and then down in Achaia, churches like Athens and Corinth and Synchria. These churches are mentioned a whole lot in the book of Acts, and many of them had letters written to them by Paul. During his third missionary journey, He spent time there in Macedonia and Greece. And the believers there gave him money to take back to Jerusalem. Now the church in Macedonia, like the church in Jerusalem, was poor, not wealthy. And it was persecuted. It was heavily persecuted, as was the church in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about the amazing generosity of these Macedonian believers in gathering up a gift to send way back down here to the church at Jerusalem. He says, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. This is pretty amazing stuff. The Macedonian Christians, facing much poverty and great persecution themselves, begged Paul to let them send send him back to Jerusalem with a gift from them. This was a big deal indeed. The church in Macedonia was overwhelmingly Gentile, and the church in Jerusalem was overwhelmingly Jewish. Now, is there a reason to think that Paul believed that one of his primary tasks from God was to shuttle money from one church to another in the Roman Empire? I think not. So why was he doing so in this case? He was doing so because the example of the Macedonian Christians was one that the whole church needed to see. Not only was this a picture of marvelous generosity proceeding out of poverty, not of wealth, it was an example of poor Gentile believers contributing to the needs of poor Jewish believers. It was a picture of wonderful unity, of purpose that superseded all boundaries of race and of background. Considering all that Paul had already said in this epistle to the Romans about the one-upsmanship that had been going on between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in the church in Rome, the example of the gift from the Macedonians is a very big deal indeed to this particular church. It's a marvelous example to all churches and to us today of how things are supposed to work. In fact, it's a big enough deal that it sidetracked Paul from a time even from extending the, the spread of the gospel into Western Europe and it, in fact, made him go the other direction. So it should be a big deal to us. And we talk quite a bit at CBC about the call to unity. But we don't talk much about the matter of giving. And that's at least in part because so many churches just beat that issue to death and abuse it. But when the scriptures bring it up, we need to talk about it. Brothers, we don't do pledge cards here. And the elders and the deacons of this church have zero knowledge about who gives how much. To the ministries of this church, and I can promise you it's going to stay that way on behalf of the elders. What you contribute is between you and God, and it should be contributed cheerfully, not under compulsion. But please do not conclude from that that it doesn't matter to God whether you participate in his work with your money. Please do not conclude that God takes lightly The issue of your investment of the money that he has graciously given to you back into the work that he is doing through the body of which he has made you a member, a part. When I say member, I mean like member of the body, like like an arm and a leg and an eye and a foot. I don't mean anything official. Your eternal investment of the money that God has given to you is a major, major theme throughout Scripture from beginning to end. It's a far, far higher priority to God than it is to many of us. God calls us to give cheerfully, but he most certainly calls us to give liberally, generously, without holding back. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this. I should probably spend more than I will. But I want to say I've repeatedly heard from missionaries in the field and from other churches and Christian ministries, especially in the last few years, that there is a very distressing generational trend going on in the church today when it comes to giving. I've mentioned it once before, kind of in passing. As the baby boomers in the church are are dropping out gradually from the income-producing component of the economy, giving is dropping off precipitously because many of those under the age of about 40 are simply not giving. Or they're giving a lot less than those who came before them. And it's not because they're significantly poorer. It's because they simply don't put a priority on giving. Now, no matter how old you are, no matter how much you make, giving is a function of your gratitude to God for who He is and what He has done for you in Jesus Christ. And a deficit of giving equates to a deficit Of gratitude. The solution is not guilt, brothers. The solution is gratitude. And you know how you get gratitude? You get it by knowing what you've been given. You get it from truly and pervasively knowing who God is and what He has done for you in Christ. You get it by knowing that your life is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent and that he gave you that life when you deserved only condemnation. We'll talk a little bit more at the very end about how to enhance gratitude. The poor persecuted churches in Macedonia begged Paul for the opportunity to participate in the work that was going on in Jerusalem. The church that had helped send Paul and his co-workers to them so that they could be saved and sanctified. So they desired with all their hearts to support that work. Now this would be equivalent to the churches that had been planted by our missionaries in the field giving money back to us so that we could send more. That would be pretty amazing. Except that our church, guys, is far more prosperous than any of those churches. The Macedonian churches were so thankful to God for the spiritual benefit to them that traced back in large measure to the faithfulness of saints in Jerusalem that they couldn't keep their money in their pockets. They had to give back. And Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there." your heart will be also. Beloved, where is our treasure? All right, enough about that. Immediately after explaining why he would be delayed yet one more time in coming to Rome so that he could give this marvelous gift from the Macedonian churches to Jerusalem, Paul restates his intent to come and see the Romans very soon. He says, therefore, when I have finished this, and I put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I have come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's what Paul understood God's plan to be at that point. And then he asked the Roman believers to pray. He said, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me and then he gives three things that he's asking them to pray about. First, that he would be delivered from those who were disobedient in Judea, which happens to be the region of Palestine in which Jerusalem is situated. Second, that the gift he was bringing to the Jerusalem church from the Macedonian churches would be well received. And third that he could then come to Rome in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in their company. It would appear that God answered no to Paul's first request, yes to the second, and a heavily modified yes to the third. There's nothing specific said later about exactly how the mostly Jewish saints in Jerusalem received that gift from the mostly Gentile Macedonians. But in Acts 21, verse 17, Luke, who was traveling with Paul at that point, said, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So it sounds like it went well. But as to Paul's other two prayer requests, God's answer was not as Paul envisioned it. Rather than delivering him from those who opposed the gospel in Judea, God instead delivered Paul into the hands of those very enemies of the gospel. And his visit to Rome, when he got to go to Rome, didn't much go the way he had planned either. More on both of those in a minute. But first, uh, the Greek word here for now, for I urge you, The exact same Greek word is the one that Paul used in Romans 12 when he said, Now I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, and to be not conformed to the world but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's an exhortation, and so is this. See, Paul's request to the Roman believers to pray for him isn't a suggestion. It's an urgent exhortation, and it has the force of a command. Again, this is no small point. By God's gracious doing, many faithful ambassadors for Christ have gone out from our midst, from this body, into many parts of the world to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of Christ. And you know what the one request is that we hear the most from those dear workers for the gospel? It's not a request for more money. It's not a request for better communication from us. It's a request a request for prayer. It's a request that we lift them up in the work that they are doing. If we believe all that Paul has said about the fact that we do everything we do in the power of God, we looked at that last week, And if we believe that God knows far more about the details of his plan to put us to use than we do, then we will be absolutely convinced that prayer is the bedrock of all of our ministry efforts. We who are utterly dependent upon God to work through us can never be more than minutes away from our acknowledgement of that utter dependence. And that deliberate, prayerful dependence isn't something that we do only as individuals. We are called to strive together, to strive together in prayer with those who are fighting the battle at the front lines. In all his epistles, Paul leaves no doubt that he considers his brethren throughout all the churches to whom he's writing to have a critical role in his own ministry and that of his co-workers, and that role is through the power of prayer. That's how God intends things to work. Every soldier knows about supply line, and every enemy of that soldier knows about supply line. There's a great story from World War II about how the Battle of the Bulge played out, and I'll keep it brief. The Germans decided that the way to get the upper hand was to make a very rapid and very aggressive advance Into, let's get my directions here and see. Okay. Make a very rapid and very aggressive advance from Germany into France where they could then try to cut off the supply line for the, from the front line of the Allied forces and that those supplies were coming from those, those coastal fortifications on the coast of Normandy that were taken at D-Day. That's where the supplies were. And the Germans said, if we can move fast enough and far enough and and get in there between those two points, we're done. Those Allied forces will be cut off, and they'll be ours for the taking. Ironically, what happened is that the Germans moved so hard, so fast, and so far that their own supply line got cut off. They ended up stuck in France with tanks that were running out of fuel and with guns that were running out of ammo. And the way it played out is that they suffered the very fate that they were trying to inflict on the Allied soldiers. That shift was probably what won the war in the European theater for the Allies. Prayer is the spiritual supply line that ties the church at home with the workers on the front lines here and abroad. Prayer unites us in a battle for the things of the Lord, for the progress of the gospel. When we don't pray, it's like cutting off the supply of food and ammunition for those who are most heavily engaged in that battle. We must pray in all things and for all things, and we must fervently and diligently and frequently pray for those who have gone out from our midst to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Can you name specific workers for the gospel for whom you and your family pray regularly? If you can't, it's a great time to start. That is a great habit to have. In verse 33, Paul gives a little benediction for the Roman saints. He says... Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Having asked the Roman believers to pray for him, Paul concludes by asking God's blessing of peace, of well-being upon them. Now if you know the rest of the story, I'm gonna black that out. If you know the rest of the story, you know that Paul did eventually get to Rome. But you know it was under far different circumstances than he had planned or expected. He came in chains as a prisoner of the Roman Empire after being arrested in Jerusalem when he went to deliver that gift. He was arrested based on trumped-up charges made against him by the Jewish, the unbelieving Jewish leaders there because of his faithful proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Now, at the time that Paul wrote this amazing letter to the Roman church, he had no good reason to believe that God didn't intend for him to come to Rome as a free man after completing his task to deliver that, that gift. But Paul's understanding of God's agenda for him changed very shortly after he wrote this letter. In fact, by the time Paul set out to go to Jerusalem, God had told him through the Holy Spirit that, that he, God, had a rather dramatic path adjustment for Paul. Paul ultimately went to Jerusalem with full knowledge that he would be arrested and imprisoned. His fellow workers repeatedly tried to convince him not to set foot in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit had also made them aware of what would happen if he went. At one point, a prophet named Agabus took Paul's belt and he tied up his own hands and feet with it to illustrate to Paul what would happen to him. Because the Holy Spirit had shown Agabus that if Paul went, he would be bound and he would be handed over to the Gentiles. That's exactly what happened. But Paul was not going to be dissuaded were sidetracked from his divine assignment even by the certainty of arrest and imprisonment. In fact, he said to his friends in Acts 21.13, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. At that point, his friends relented. (laughs) They simply said, okay, the will of the Lord be done. And that's exactly where Paul wanted them to be. That's exactly where he had already been for a very long time. Willing to go wherever the Lord sent him and to do whatever the Lord required of him. Paul never apologized to the Romans about being wrong about God's itinerary for him at the time he wrote this epistle. He never lamented the fact that God had this radically different path in mind for him than the one that he had envisioned. That's because Paul never had his own agenda. The only agenda that he cared anything about was God's. So what did it matter to him whether or when God clued him in about his plans? What did that matter? Paul knew that God was the one doing all the steering, and that is all that mattered to him. Is that all that matters to you? For the child of God who is truly dependent upon God to direct his steps and to make him useful for his eternal purposes, there is no threat at all in not being sure about what God has in mind for you. In fact, there's no threat at all in being wrong about what you think God has in mind for you. For the believer who's willing to take his lead from God alone, there is no threat that he'll ever find himself in the wrong place or acting at the wrong time because he's not the one doing the steering. The life of the child of God is never ever a function of chance. Chance and luck are a flat contradiction to God's own declaration about his sovereignty. His unwavering sovereignty over His people, His creation, and the heart of every man. When I went to seminary back in the early 80s, I expected to be in full-time ministry. And if you're listening on the tape, I put great big quotes around that. Soon afterward, I started being paid full-time to preach and teach the gospel in January of 2012. 26 years after I finished seminary. Beloved, beloved, I do not consider any of the years of my life as a believer, either before seminary or since, to have been preamble to my ministry for the sake of Christ. Because all of it was my ministry for the sake of Christ. And I would gladly do it all again. Just the way it played out. Because I believe... What God says in his word about his absolute sovereignty over the course of our lives. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 16, 9. The man, mind of a man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. God has blessed me abundantly. He's used me in ways I would never have expected with people in whose lives I would never have expected to be used. And he has been my only sufficiency every minute of every day. I've done a million things wrong along the way. But fortunately, I've never been the one doing the steering. God knows his instruments. And he knows his plans for putting those instruments to use. And we can rest in that. Because he knows his plans, you know what? I don't have to. All I have to do is obey what God has told me. Just a couple more minutes here. Guys, we are all full-time ministers with no quotes. We are all ambassadors for Christ all the time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Unless your job somehow prevents you from ever seeing or communicating with or serving another human being, then the work of ministering to others is your full-time assignment, just as it is that of every other believer in Jesus Christ. If God told you in advance everything he was going to do in your life, you'd you'd be able to walk by your knowledge rather than by faith. God might give you some pretty strong hints about what he plans to do with you, and sometimes he'll tell you exactly what the next steps are. But don't expect him never to leave you uncertain about what's going to happen next or what's going to happen way down the road. Because Beloved, uncertainty, uncertainty on our part is indispensable to dependence upon God. If God didn't see fit to give the Apostle Paul his whole itinerary before he wrote this important epistle, don't expect him to give you all of yours. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. You know what it is that you actually need to know, in order to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ, to be joyful and peaceful and purposeful and useful to God every single day of your life, you need to know what God has already told you. And that's everything you need to know. Second Peter 1, verses 2 through 4, Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. In order that, listen to this, in order that by those promises you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world by lust. He sounds like Paul. (laughs) Paul exhorted us in Romans 12, 2, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Peter says the way we become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of this world is through the knowledge of two things. Who God is and what God has done. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. That's who God is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. That's what God has done. Who God is and what God has promised to us in Jesus Christ, that's what we need to know. So where do we get that knowledge? It's an important question, and you already know the answer. There's only one place. The transformation of our minds by that which we... uh, the, The transformation of our minds by which we become unconformed to this world and conform to Christ is the transformation that the Holy Spirit works as we behold God through his revelation of himself. That's how it works. I'll stop there. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the amazing example to us of this man, Paul, who laid his life down for you in every way imaginable, who found every molecule of his power and sufficiency only in you, and who found every minute of his agenda, of his schedule, of his life's work, only in you. Father, may this be true of us. This is your church. We are your people. We are your children made fellow heirs with Christ only by your doing, when we deserve nothing but condemnation, <laughs> we, can't, we can't even begin to thank you. And Father, make our lives lives of grateful, steadfast obedience. We pray this in the name of our Master and our Savior. Amen.